legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. In a fast-paced world... Every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. In a world where podcasts need feedback from their listeners Uh in order to market themselves appropriately to advertisers. I'm listening. One listener has the power (laughs) to shape the future. That listener is you all right jake look can we you can you guys just please fill out this listener survey for us it would really mean a lot uh accept your destiny <laughs> take control it's in the info it's in the description of the podcast itself it'll only take a couple of minutes and it's confidential we'll take no emails or telephone numbers we from don't you. require an email it, you know what it's fine we can just do it <laughs> You have the power. You are the force that will guide us. So once again, just click the link in the uh, show description uh, of this week's episode. You can find it in the podcast app. It's very easy. Okay, we're done here. Thank you so much. And uh, here's this week's episode. You. It's our episode on the Joker, and I am your green-haired wizard, Holden McNeely. And I'm your fucking psycho, crazy, fucked-up clown motherfucker. You ready to roll? I got knives. <laughs> I'm crazy. <laughs> Look, Jake was wanted to go full method for this episode of the podcast. Since he's walked through the door, he's been talking like this to me. <laughs> he mailed me um, a picture of his own dick, painted white, and uh, with the tip painted green yesterday. How'd you like that? Red I hood. didn't like anything about it, Jake. Woo! No, I'm crazy. We're not doing a Batman movie. There's no reason to get into method as the Joker. I'm gonna cut my nipple off, you know, like a clown. <laughs> oh my god, he's doing it! Yeah! Oh, oh, I'm throwing up all over the place. The Joker right now. has many faces and is as much <laughs> a reflection of our own understanding of evil as he is a grim inverse of our conception of justice through Batman. Wow, way to skip to the end of the podcast, Jake. I'm crazy! <laughs> I'm a cut ya, I'm a clown. <laughs> Uh, I was, what is society, man? I mean, honestly, we should have actually done this episode. It actually ended up, did it not end up beating Garfield like last minute in the polls? Um, and we and we only realized it after we'd already decided to do an episode on Garfield. Without people, you know, a lot of, uh, let's call them cheapskates, uh, hate it when we talk about the Patreon. But over on the <laughs> Patreon, you get access to weekly bonus shows and you can uh, vote on polls that kind of help us determine uh, what episodes to do when we're kind of like, 
you know, having trouble deciding. And the week that the Garfield episode went down, uh, technically the day we recorded, the Joker squeaked it out. I definitely, you know, go back and forth sometimes in terms of the shows that we do research on, right? In Mm -hmm. terms of my interest in the material and you know sometimes it's a little bit more of a slog sometimes it's just like a constant just page turner of fascination and and that is the joker it is such a fucking interesting phenomenal character that's just been developed so many ways it's he's such an open you can go so many different ways Mm -hmm. with him you can go light and fun and silly you can go uber dark and totally just creepy and fucked up and and everywhere in between and and that feeling that contrast and the way that he perfectly complements the character of batman is just it's so endlessly entertaining and that is why i feel he has been alive in entertainment for decades at this point it's almost a crime that we own a crime uh, that we have only about an hour to talk about him because you could you could never stop deconstructing how the joker is a reflection of our society mm-hmm. uh, i think was it the movie uh, unbreakable Ah, yes. Uh, Where, like, uh, Samuel L. Jackson had the whole rant about how, like, even down to the color schemes, Batman is blue and yellow and primary colored, while the greens and purples of the Joker are quintessentially villainous because they're secondary colors, Mm. already, like, muddled, already compromised. But also vibrant, whereas Batman is so plain and dark and on the line. And, And Joker is this, like, vibrant, fun... You know, it, it, uh, almost leading you to want to back him in so many ways, you know. But he's the evil one, even though he has the vibrance. And Batman's the the good guy, the bright, the you know, the the light and uh, shining in the darkness, even though he's dark and brooding. It's so great. I mean, there's just so much fun in terms of the dichotomies, the contrast, everything about the way these two characters interact with each other. And- I mean, judging by the Q the Q score alone, the Joker is the Garfield of supervillains. Absolutely. Infinitely recognizable. So let's talk about the origin of this character and take him all the way through up to today um, and the new Joker movie that is slated to be coming There's out. There's like seven of them now. It's yeah. ridiculous. Well, well, yeah, exactly. But yeah, with uh, Joaquin Phoenix taking the role, we'll talk about all the different iconic Joker performances throughout the years and how different they are from each other and how wonderful they are uh, uh, in all of their own individual ways. I love that I have like multiple performers that are alive today and some who've passed away that are like up there as my favorite performances ever. And they're all playing the same character and taking completely different takes on that character. So here we go. Let's talk about the three men and their three different stories. That's going to be our opening section here. There are three men and three, which is perfect because the whole thing with the Joker is that he even, the Joker himself even talks about how he he remembers it different every time, his origin story and how he never can keep his straight. So the fact that the three men who created him all have different origin stories for his creation and all have been just fucking contradicting each other throughout the years is just so perfect. For, now, for the, we've the done a lot of superhero uh, histories before, and uh, stop me if you heard this one. Uh, a bunch of bitter old men have conflicting stories about who the real creator is. Yes, absolutely. Now, there are three main characters in this creation story. Bob Kane, Bill Finger, and Jerry Robinson. 
So let's start, let's start with Bob Kane. Mm-hmm. He's a New York kid to immigrant parents. Uh, surprise, surprise. Was high school friends with Will Eisner, who would later go on to create The Spirit. Their and whole high school is full of like weird industrialists and artists that like will sh- shape the course of the 20th century. He studied art at Cooper Union and then joined the Max Fleischer Studio as a trainee animator. Max Fleischer, best known for Betty Boop. Among other Popeye, things, Popeye uh, as well. Uh, actually, it's uh, the Fleischer Brothers studio is also where Jack Kirby got his start as well. Um, and then he went on uh, starting as a f- comics freelancer. This was that was animation. His his start in comics was freelancing for a comic book called Wow What a Magazine. <laughs> and he is also the co-creator of the Batman. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but then we have Bill Finger. He is a part-time shoe salesman raised in the Bronx during the Great Depression. He joined Bob Kane's studio. He created his own studio, like literally in his bedroom, in 1938, where, according to Finger Kane, and this is a quote from Finger, had an idea for a character called Batman, and he'd like me to see the drawings. I went over to Kane's, and he had drawn a character who looked very much like Superman with kind of reddish tights. I believe with boots, no gloves, no gauntlets, with a small domino mask swinging on a rope. He had two stiff wings that were sticking out looking like bat wings and under it was a sign, a big sign that said Batman. Now Finger is the one who apparently added the touches like the cowl and the cape and the costume getting rid of the domino mask. Kane says Bill Finger was a contributing force on Batman right from the beginning. He wrote most of the great stories and was influential in setting the style and genre other writers would emulate. He then later walked that back as soon as like he Finger got more like when it was Bob Kane just being a gracious guy being like and of course this this bright young kid uh, Bill Finger helped me out a little too. <laughs> he was like always ready to talk about it and then as soon as like his reputation as soon as he had a reputation to protect mm. and more importantly like rights and like uh just just like keeping his name attached to everything he immediately stopped like giving finger credit now we also have he gave finger the finger essentially it's a huge like thing in comics fandom yes just isn't, how, there a, isn't there a whole movie uh documentary i believe uh the, about that there's i think there's a graphic about no finger getting like pushed out of the batman creation story essentially i wouldn't doubt it if there was there's been books written about it it's just common now everything from like the batmobile to uh, the, the rogues gallery, you know, Finger was the was the uh, basically the writer of these stories. Yeah, Kane said, "I made Batman a superhero vigilante when I first created him. Bill turned him into a scientific detective. So just really developed oh, oh, the, the character. entire point of Batman. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Um, and then the third part to this um, differing storyline of the creation of Joker came from a Jerry Robinson, comic book artist who also create co created Robin." From New Jersey, he went to uh, Columbia University but didn't graduate because Bob Kane had already hired him while he was there just after Bill and Bob had created Batman. Kane hired uh, the 17-year-old as an assistant in 1939. That's a very nice way of saying ghost artist. <laughs> after he saw Robinson in a white jacket decorated with his own illustrations. That's fucking kind of cool. And uh, he moved, or also, and also, though, incredibly nerdy, if you want to visualize that, he's also that weird kid. I mean, nah, man. <laughs> Having a cool drawing on the back of your jacket is awesome. Also, he moved. Also, wearing a rayon shirt with Goku on it gets you laid. There you go. He moved nearby Kane, whose bedroom was an art studio, and was also hired during this time on staff at National Comics, which later become DC Comics. So he was kind of working back and forth as so, Batman wasn't specifically DC just yet, or wasn't. So the way this panned out is uh, Superman becomes a huge hit. 
Bob Kane is part of that New York circle of artists that is associated with the publishing company that will eventually become DC. Uh, more, he's worked on more fun, which if you go back to our Superman three-parter was an essential part of like Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster's run. Superheroes as part of these comic book compilations that featured original work, not repackaged strips from newspapers. Uh, Bob Kane uh, pitches Batman to this publisher. I don't have the exact name in front of me right now. And they're like, yeah, sure, anything. Superman's a hit. We need we need shit. Sure, sure, sure. And so it's subcontracted out. This character is the, like, Bob Kane is the guy who makes it. Uh, Bob Kane gets the checks. Bob Kane gets credit for everything. Every comic on the uh, page that makes it to America's drugstores and childhood hands is emblazoned with Bob Kane's name on it. But really, Bob Kane isn't that talented of an artist. He was accused of swiping very often, uh, you know, stealing other layouts and drawings from other uh, artists. Uh, Even his crude Batman drawings, like, are really unappealing. They don't have any of that, like, kind of pop that you would expect the same way that uh, a lot of, like, early superhero comics are like, oh, shit, I get why this was a thing. Um, And so this, like, weird pyramid of ghost uh, writers and ghost artists that kind of all led to the top means that there was this giant collaborative mess, but Bob Kane always got the final credit. Yes. Uh, so this is this is the differing storylines, and we'll start with one thing that they at least all agree happened. They all acknowledge that it was Finger who showed them an image of actor Conrad Veidt as the character Gwynplaine uh, from the 1928 silent film The Man Who Laughs. First of all, this is this is where my head started to crack in two because <laughs> the man who laughs thing is always brought up, but sometimes it's uh, Jerry Robinson saying like, oh, oh, I showed um, Finger the drawing of the Joker and Finger was yes. just like, oh, that reminds me of that movie I saw. Yes. And then sometimes Bob Kane is like, we wanted to, like, I thought of this because of this, like, movie. Hmm. It's all conflicting. Because uh, I read that at least they agree on that one thing. Which, by the way, we should talk about The Man Who Laughs for a second. Okay. It well, is, first of all, technically not a silent film. Yes, it was It was actually the transition, but they only used very little uh, audio, right? They, they used, used a, uh, it was kind of this weird post-pro, they, they shelved it. And then used a post process to add sound effects and music. Exactly. So it was sort. It was a silent film that it wasn't like. I mean, it wasn't a talkie if no one's talking. You and know what people I mean? call but it, it wasn't quite a silent film. And people call it like a, they always bring up the fact that it was like this crazy obscure foreign film, but it wasn't. It was actually produced in America, mm-hmm. and they just brought in uh, Paul Lenny to do the uh, directing for wow. it, and brought in uh, what's his name, Conrad Veidt. Yes. Conrad Veidt to play the man who laughs. Yes. And the plot of the man who laughs. Is fucking crazy it's and weird. so crazy. It follows a man who is disfigured by a doctor after his father is sentenced to death by, like, this king so that he will, in, in quotes, laugh forever at his fool of a father, which is fucked up. And later, he falls in love with a blind woman. He becomes a freak show star of a traveling carnival. And then he gets, like, outed as the son. And he has he, he gets seduced by this uh, over-sexualized countess and uh, this whole everything kind of comes together. Just the and core it's... thing to the plot that you have to understand is uh, it was based on a Victor Hugo novel. Yes. Victor Hugo who did The Hunchback of Notre Dame and yes. I think Les Mis, if I'm remembering. Or is that a different French Possibly, guy? Possibly. I cannot anyway, confirm or deny um, that. The idea is a compra chico, which is this like uh, I'm trying to think of a modern equivalent, like MS-13, like gang member, like this this vision of a, like a crime lord that did fucked up shit that didn't really happen, but made white people scared, uh, stole him as a child and like mutilated his face using gross scientific methods so that he would always be smiling. 
and uh, he and they would use that as a uh, performance freak, and that's how they made money by mutilating a child to make him smile all the time and making money. But like, you don't have to mutilate a child. You, a guy can just smile for a show. It's very easy. Yeah, you can just be like, I'm smiling. Like that's that makes no sense. Uh, yada yada yada. In like the weird, we can't go into the full thing, but in a classic tale of golden age Hollywood, uh, flipadoo. The movie was originally supposed to star Lon Chaney, who passed on it, and the uh, kind of the production kind of went ahead with this weird like foreign crew, mm. and Chaney, who uh, still had to do a movie based on a horror thing, uh, ended up making The Phantom of the Opera, which is a very similar freak show loves a woman story. So it's like tangentially related to both French literature and classic Universal monsters. It's just a weird the 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 role of the man who laughs in the story of the Joker has just been like kind of half remembered so often that the reality of it is like actually more interesting. But you can look at, you can Google search the man who laughs and see the fucked up photo of the guy yes. who looks, he looks like the fucking Joker. He looks like Joker and also the most terrifying version of the Joker. He's horrifying looking. Uh, and I love that image. It is such a classic image and you'll probably remember it as soon as you see it or if you haven't seen it yet, you'll probably go, oh, fuck, it's scary and close your laptop. Uh, I actually, uh, there was a traveling museum exhibition um, that kind of got into the history of Golden Age comics and how it related to the Jewish immigrant experience. Cool. And uh, I actually, they actually had the individual sheet of like notebook paper that Jerry Robinson doodled his first like Joker face uh, that he did while like literally in class at Columbia University because he was still enrolled at the time. Okay, so let's talk about Jerry Robinson's story to start. All right, mm -hmm. Jerry Robinson uh, claims he brought a Joker playing card into the mix during brainstorming and claims that everything came from that. In an interview with in the Amazing World of DC Comics, Robinson claimed he wanted an arch villain to test Batman, who was exotic and enduring, a diabolically sinister but clownish villain. And um, also said that while studying journalism at Columbia, he got intrigued with villains and how they are made up of contradictions, which makes a lot of sense for the Joker. Robinson said, I wanted somebody visually exciting I wanted somebody that would make an indelible impression, would be bizarre, it would be memorable, like the Hunchback of Notre Dame or any other villains that had unique physical characters. And he also claimed that he told Finger about the concept by telephone and showed him sketches later on and that Finger tweaked the idea with his sketch of Vite. Robinson says, in that first meeting when I showed them that sketch of the Joker, Bill said it reminded him of Conrad Veidt in The Man Who Laughs. That was the first mention of it. He can be credited and Bob himself, we all played a role in it. The concept was mine. Bill finished that first script from my outline of the persona and what should happen in the first story. He wrote the script of that, so he really was co-creator, and Bob and I did the visuals, so Bob was also. Okay, so that's Jerry Robinson's story. Mm -hmm. Now we have Bob Kane's story. He claims that the image of Gwynplaine was shown to Kane first. Bob Kane says, Bill Finger and I created the Joker. Bill was the writer. Jerry Robinson came to me with a playing card of the Joker. That's the way I sum it up. The Joker looks like Conrad Veidt. You know, the actor in The Man Who Laughs by Victor Hugo. Bill Finger had a book with a photograph of Conrad Veidt and showed it to me and said, here's the Joker. Jerry Robinson had absolutely nothing to do with it, but he'll always say he created it till he dies. He brought in a playing card, which we used for a couple of issues for him, the Joker, to use as his playing card. That is Bob Kane's story. Fuck Bob Kane. I mean, it's, <laughs> I mean, this, even in the world of comics, everyone who's like around for him had like some version 
of like a Bob Kane was shitty to me anecdote. Right. And uh, just to like, just to like really nail just how big of a shit uh, Bob Kane is. I just like, to his dying day, he like swore that he was like the guy and not didn't give anyone credit his tombstone his physical tombstone that you can find in california literally says this is the actual text god bestowed a dream upon bob kane blessed with divine inspiration and rich imagination bob created a legacy known as batman What a turd. Good Lord. All right. Jesus has told me that the pointy-eared punch man will be a cop. (laughs) All right. Here's Bill Finger's story. I got a call from Bob Kane. He had a new villain. When I arrived, he was holding a playing card. Apparently, Jerry Robinson or Bob, I don't recall who, looked at the card and they had an idea for a character, the Joker. Bob made a rough sketch of it. At first, it didn't look much like the Joker. It looked more like a clown. But I remembered that Grosset and Dunlap formerly issued very cheap editions of classics by Alexander Dumas and Victor Hugo. The vol- volume I had was The Man Who Laughs. His face had been permanently operated on so that he will always have this perpetual grin. And it looked absolutely weird. I cut the picture out of the book and gave it to Bob, who drew the profile and gave it more a more sinister aspect. Then he worked on the face, made him look a little clown-like, which accounted for his white face, red lips, green hair, and that was the Joker. So there you go. Many comic historians credit Robinson with the Joker's creation and finger with the character's development. Of course, leaving out Bob Kane, which is probably the way it happened. I will say this, okay? I have had personal, actual interaction with this situation before. I, with, with, uh, my You're talking sca- about your beloved Murder Fist character, Scabby Jeff, the I know, incest right? baby. It really, it was a Murder Fist sketch. I can't remember which Murder Fist sketch it was, but in reminiscing about this sketch and talking about the writing of it, um, I was talking with my, my buddy Ed, who's also in Murder Fist, and both of us had completely different recollections of how this sketch was created, and both of us were 100% confident that we had come up, individually had come up with the idea. Wow. And we're, I, I, I was like, my skin, I was like fucking felt heat from, I was yeah. pissed, because I felt sure beyond shadow of a doubt that I definitely came up with it, that was my memory, and he felt 100% the other way about it. And I think sometimes there's something about the mind and inception of ideas mm-hmm. that we ju- and and the way we remember things that just does that to people and then and thus you have so many stories like this one where people refute you know for decades upon decades who actually came up with the character and how it was come up with so I do believe probably the historians who think Robinson and Finger were pre- pretty much the main two who came up with the Joker. Um, I, I still, I still totally get how this could happen, and uh, I feel that it could have been any, any, any way, you know. I, uh, I will give Finger a ton of credit because, uh, if you read the first issue of, or it's Batman number one, his first spinoff, uh, title after Detective Comics. Yes, this first Joker story is so like. Everything that you think about as vital to the Joker's like character is in these pages. Everything from his use of the Joker venom to the fact that like he's surprisingly like a physical match for Batman when cornered. But like he's even more dangerous when they're actually like toe to toe. Yeah. Um. The fact that he'll always do these kind of like fucked up elaborate murders where like all the like and think about Dark Knight, the movie. 
you know, all these cops are always surrounded, like being like, there's no way he's going to get us. We're very prepared. And still he somehow finds a way to like kill someone without ever like being there. His like weird manic obsession, his insanity. There's so much in here that the Joker is like that you'd think were added later that you'd think it would be updated. But it's all here on the pages. It's all kind of basically there, which is yeah, it's actually not usually the case. I Even feel him like, like wearing creations. like flesh colored makeup to sneak in somewhere and then uh-huh. having it like kind of blend out. Murdering, uh, murdering the victims with Joker venom, leaving their faces smiling grotesquely, which we see even in, you know, the 1989 Batman um, and all through. Uh, also, just to give a little context, Batman number one came out in the spring of 1940. Batman's debut in Detective Comics number 27 was in May of 1939, so not long after the creation of Batman. And now we're, all, we're as early as 1940. Another interesting fact that, uh, and thank you to Whitney uh, Ellisworth, the editor uh, at the time. <laughs> I love this. That Joe Joker almost was murdered off after the first uh, issue uh, or after his first appearance because Bill Finger actually uh, felt that reoccurring villains was a bad idea because he didn't want to make Batman seem inept. So he was supposed to get killed, but Whitney Ellisworth frantically uh, forced a hastily drawn panel of the Joker um, essentially giving a nod to him still being alive. It's after. actually incredible. You can see the, I'm just going to hand you my tablet because sure. I have the panels right here. Sure. Uh, the Joker in a final like throwdown with uh, Batman because there's two stories in Batman number one. First Joker gets caught, then he escapes and has like a throwdown and the Joker stabs himself by accident through the heart with a knife and Batman and Robin run away and go like, oh shit, better let the cops take care of it. That sure was a weird one. Goodbye. And then these two hastily one hastily drawn panel where like the Joker you can't even see the Joker there's just like a scribble of a body in a car and a guy who's not even drawn like a doctor is like I am a doctor and he is still alive I might have I just examined this man he isn't dead he's still alive and he's going to live and then just to (laughs) fill out the rest of the page there's just like a nonsense panel where Robin is like be nice to old people and you'll be Robin's (laughs) best friend So, it's such a weird ending to this story. So shout outs to uh, to Whitney for that. Thank you so much for that. Um, uh, the Joker immediately becomes a hit. He starts showing up in basically every issue. And he's straight murdering people early on, which is kind of funny. You think it's all innocence and cutesiness. But actually, before the Comics Code Authority came in and made and lamed up the room, <laughs> uh, lamed up the comic world, uh, he was murdering people, derailing a train, <laughs> uh, going crazy. At this point, artist Dick Sprang took over for Bob Kane with Finger and editor Jack Schiff doing the stories. Um, After a little while, they realized they should maybe soften the character just a little bit to appeal to the younger ages. Uh, So this is when they start turning him to more of a prankster and less of a just straight maniacal murderer. Uh, Some consider this era to start with a comic in 1942 titled Joker The Joker Walks the Last Mile in which the Joker confesses to his crimes, turns himself in, he gets the chair, then he gets revived and then um, he can't be arrested because he's already paid for his crimes and so this is like... What a delightful twist! When he starts finding like loot, which we'll get into some other famous loopholes that the Joker tried to find in uh, the criminal world Uh, but this was I think the start of, of that idea that he's always looking for these bizarre loopholes of logic to uh to be able to well, get away his, with crimes that's one of the, that's another key part of the joker is that he's like constantly you know it's the classic argument like why doesn't batman kill the joker because the joker is this glaring like just 
edge case that kind of disproves a lot of Batman's and in and in to say in a greater sense, society's own ideas about justice and rehabilitation. Right, right. That like, what do you do with this truly unredeemable force of evil in the world? Uh, my favorite early Joker story is uh, 1951's. Oh, what's it? The Red Hood, something the Red Hood, uh, where we get. Basically, the the man behind the Red Hood, mm-hmm. where we get the official origin of the Joker. Like, yep. I know we love that. How do I get these scars? Oh, I know. I'm like unknowable. I am like a greater evil because the story of it. always changes. Yeah, that kind of stuff. But the basic one that's used in the 1989 Batman, the one that's kind of generally recognized, or that there's at least some version of it, even in the Killing Joke, it's it's a version of this origin story from Detective Comics number 168 in 1951, written by Bill Finger uh, of him. Um, stealing a million dollars from the Monarch playing card company and then jumping into a basin of the company's chemicals to avoid Batman and getting disfigured. You know, those playing card chemicals. You know, the chemicals. And of course, because the uh, chemicals turned his skin pale white, his hair green and his lips bright red, uh, he turned himself into a joker. Just like the playing cards. Oh, what cruel irony. Uh, this is also just like a very like casual thing. But uh, he says that he worked as a lab worker, which kind of explains why he was uh, uh, so adept at creating various toxins and venoms. Yeah. Uh, um, which, you know, fuck you, Alan Moore. You know, there's other jobs besides stand-up comedian that turns you into a psychopath. <laughs> Another notable comic from the Golden Age, I think maybe actually the Man in the Brown the Red Hood, just to get technical, might technically be Silver Age, but either way, it's kind of borderline. Yeah. Uh, the Golden one last one from the Golden Age. It's really just look up the cover of this is Detective Comics number sixty nine. Nice. Um, it was uh the it was it's that dope cover of the Joker like coming out of a genie lamp with, with two fucking <laughs> pistols <laughs> and aimed down at a, like a tiny Batman and Robin. It's an like it's a good like tattoo if you're considering a now, Joker tattoo. And that one also gave uh that is the uh, issue that gave Joker the his ability to like use guns really well, which I think is a cool. <laughs> Also antithesis to Bat, like you kind of need to give the perfect arch enemy to Batman uh, guns, you know, since Batman is so anti-gun and and so anti-murder that he kind of needs to be good at gunplay. I mean, we I've I've always thought this, and I guess I'll, I'll I guess I'll get into this now, but like one of the most fascinating fucking things about the Batman mythos is like how much more complicated his arsenal and his backstory has become to Mm -hmm. adapt to modern days where the initial anxiety that birthed him is like, oh, it's kind of fucked up that anybody can buy a 38 special and just like gun down someone despite their status. Yeah. And like in order to be stronger than just some rando with a gun, you have to be a master gymnast and martial artist and a detective and have all these skills. And then like as guns and as the world has become more dangerous, you have to have nanomachines and satellites and laser tight and like gases and pellets and miniguns and like, or, you know, beanbag miniguns and tanks and jets and like the amount of complication just so that someone without a gun is in a fair fight with someone with a gun has gotten so ludicrous. <laughs> um, that is but uh, speaking of anxieties and fears, the Joker is Definitely a crime boss at this yeah. stage. Of the in this stage, he is dressed literally like Al Capone, like behind all the purple, like everything from the weird necktie to the long coat to the obsession with robbery to even um, the early issue, the first issue with the Joker has weird parallels to like the Valentine's Day massacre with like Al Capone 
and like what evil represented the weird like giddy like intoxicating the the amoral yet fun version of crime in America yeah. was uh the gangster. Yeah, laughing. I mean, I, I'm even thinking, you know, even though this is way well after the time, but you know, Goodfellas, a bunch of guys sitting around laughing like the Joker at the bar. You know what yeah. I mean? Like that's kind of the way that they were. They were all like happy-go-lucky, funny, fun people when they went and hung out, and then they just do these murderous, crazy shit. So it's not too far off. Whose very existence and continued, uh, you know, activity kind of flaunted the limitations of our legal system and our ability to exact justice from the world. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, so just like, I'm j- I'm just laying that out there to do like, a, that the idea of Joker will always reflect what we're scared of. That's that's what I'm trying to lay out. Hey, Jake. Y- yes? It's me. It's Morris from the Comics Code Authority. Oh, hey, Morris. Um, It's fine. I didn't, it's, so you read that book by Dr. Wortham, huh? Yeah. And I like don't want comics to be like, like fun anymore. I mean, you know the 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 murder books are selling real well though. The kids love the murder. Do you want to come to my church party? It's at one p.m. on Sunday. Everybody's going to be crying, and at the end, you might get to hold hands with a girl for two seconds. Um. Okay. Uh. But can I still have um? Stories published for children where a childlike figure of a clown commits horrifically violent acts? No! (laughs) Damn it! Uh, so what I was trying to do right there was portray an incredibly lame person because the Comics Code Authority, I feel, were just that in 1954, established uh, in order to essentially pull out any kind of like violence or, I don't know, enjoyment or fun out of comic books and make them really lame for the kids. And that is what turned the Joker from a homicidal maniac to a goofy thieving trickster which is not necessarily terrible because we're about to get to our first iconic performance of live at least for live action of the joker um with the uh batman uh tv series so um in 1964 the joker appeared even less as julius schwartz became the editor of batman comics and schwartz was not a fan of the joker so even at this point this is like one of the joker's lowest points like they lamed him up in 1954 and then a decade later a guy comes in who just doesn't think he's cool but on any level and so he's just pushed out 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 of the comic books and batman sort of waning in popularity the silver age wasn't like a huge huge time for batman uh this is like one of those weird misconceptions that like batman and superman during the silver age was like uh you know so compromised and so goofy we all know about the covers but as we covered in the superman episode They were still selling great. Like, all that goofy, like, put a monkey on the cover. Kids love that shit. Right, right. I say it's time to bring in Cesar Romero, our first iconic performance of the Batman. (laughs) And now that I think about it, might have been my first exposure. Oh, absolutely. To the the character of the Joker because I remember loving watching. I would watch that show because what they would do was the show. If you don't know, it was always in two parts. Mm-hmm. So they would do essentially what they would do. I forget where I was watching this. It was on like TNT or something every day at like five o'clock after school. But I would watch it every day. It was they would show the second part of yes of like an episode to conclude yesterday, and then they would show a first part cliffhanger 
for next day's episode. So it kind of keep you wanting to keep Will tuning Batman in. Will Batman become flat as a pancake? Will the boy Wonder become yesterday's syrup? Tune in next time. Same bat time. Same, same bat, bat channel. channel. Uh, so Cesar Romero, let's give a little background on this guy. Born in NYC in 1907 to a concert singer mother and import-export merchant father. He would play Latin lovers in films from the 1930s to the 1950s. He played the Cisco Kid in six Westerns from 1939 to 1941. He's just one of the Hollywood. He's he's in the stable, right? Yeah. Hollywood is very different back then. If you were in, you were just getting work constantly. Whether um, you wanted to work or not. Whether you wanted to work or not. And he started doing villainous roles such as Italian gangsters and East Indian princes uh, in these films as well. Comedically, though, however, you at there, the same exotic time. exotic face. Get over here. Exactly. You, uh, he also uh, was starting to do some comedic parts. He appeared in The Little Princess with Shirley Temple and was a foil to Sinatra in Ocean's Eleven, the original uh, Ocean's film. Son of a bitch. On TV, he appeared in many shows, including Zorro, the Lucy Lucy. Desi Comedy Hour um, and Wagon Train. From 1966-1968, though, he appeared as on Batman as the Joker. Batman, of course, the TV show that ran during that time. It only ran, I was surprised to see this, it only ran for like two and a half seasons. Oh, yeah, but uh, syndication was a godsend to it. And the uh, show was very popular with kids. And the campiness of the TV show kind of bled back into the comics. Yes, it it, it actually it actually pushed the comic into the campy direction. Uh, one of the funny things about his performance, he refused to shave his mustache for the role, which I don't. Looking back, I don't know. Remember if I noticed this or not? But they would just cake on the white makeup to cover it up. I mean, CRT televisions are so low res right. that as a kid, you probably didn't realize it. But like, if you squinted hard, or like. I feel like my dad pointed it out to me, being like, look at his upper lip. He's got a mustache. <laughs> so uh, he he also introduced, or the character introduced a lot of Joker's main traits, like lethal joy buzzers, acid-squirting flowers, trick guns, and goofy elaborate crimes. And I remember loving, the, loving Cesar Romero's Joker. Uh, I was more of a Burgess Meredith Penguin fan myself. I also love the Burgess Meredith Penguin. Uh, I loved it because... And an Eartha Kid Catwoman fan, but for very different. <laughs> yes, that was also a bit of an awakening for all of us, Jake. We all sort of had a penis touch during the viewing. We, It's fine. Not a touch, more of just a light rubbing on the couch leg. Yeah, maybe you know, some like of a, that. Like a dog. Maybe some like of that. Like a dumb fucking animal. Fucking stupid dog boy. Uh, and now, but now, this is kind of the ca- Why do we off. have more li- women listeners? <laughs> Why? This is sort of capping off the Cesar Romero section uh, uh the silver age rather section of the comics and now we move into the bronze age and this i think is where the joker really gets interesting um really kicks it up a notch um and that is with batman number 251's the joker's five-way revenge this, this is, is an amazing comic and i need to read it there this one this more than any other one probably gave me like a, a two such a list of stuff i need i want to check out and read stuff i already know but a bunch of stuff i want to check out and this is one of them. You read this comic? I read this comic. Uh, it's Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams, a duo that we've like mentioned a couple of times before. Uh, from their between Marvel and DC, these two had just yeah, done, they did a lot. Denny O'Neill had the kind of like more modern, like gritty writing style. Even though now, if you read it now, it's still very like comic booky. And isn't he kind of also known as the the kind of guy that could go in and really shake up a, mm-hmm. a known hero or or villain and really give them new life uh, mm-hmm. for fans? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And Neil Adams' artwork, where he was like a commercial illustrator and like just had so much like base anatomical. Uh, just like life drawing 
bona fides that like a lot of like basically, you know, in, in this era, you were a kid, you got hired by a comic publisher and you were just drawing comics your entire life. So like Neil Adams artwork was a fundamental shake in the way that like art and comics was done. This is the iconic Joker to me. This Neil Adams yeah. Joker with the long face, yeah. the skinny body. And uh, it kind of plays out. Denny O'Neill talks about how he, you know, the show was over. They like the campiness of the show had stuck around too long and people were kind of sick of it. And so his big idea was to go back to the archives, right back to that first issue by Finger and Robinson. And like, it's the idea of Joker one after the other rubbing out and murder. Yeah. Murdering his former gang members who snitched him out and got him into jail. I love that he did this. He said, I went to the DC library and read some of the early stories. I tried to get a sense of what Kane and finger were after. I love that. Also, it makes it sound like he's bad. He's the detective. You know what I mean? Like going in and he just wants to get to the core of Joker and brings this awesome Joker back out into the world, which is so fucking cool. He introduced the idea of the Joker being legally insane as for why he goes to Arkham Asylum instead of prison, which uh, also Arkham Asylum was uh, originally introduced by O'Neill as Arkham Hospital. And I think the whole... O'Neill being responsible for Arkham Asylum too and connecting that with so much of the Joker in my mind is connected to Arkham Asylum Um, that was probably a lot because of two things the Batman animated series which we'll absolutely obviously get to and the Arkham games oh yeah you know starting with Batman Arkham Asylum and Joker is just so infused with Arkham Asylum of course he is he's known as like the crazy insane guy you know he also kind of revolutionizes this trope in the joker which is like a tough guy like a hardened criminal gets confronted by like a weird looking clown man and the criminal is scared shitless yeah and like that energy that like this goofy character inspires such fear is such oh it's so good so good it's so smart and so this was written the joker's five-way revenge which i need to fucking read was uh this was in 1973 and before this there was a four-year just drought of the joker there was no joker like it, it all came back uh, during with this issue and led to even a Joker comic series, which ran for nine issues from May 1975 to October 1976. Just to give you a sense of like how much this brought him back into the world, into the uh, into the hands of comic book fans. Um, uh, during this Joker series, though, was kind of uh, shot in the foot by the comics. Go to authority, of course. The Joker was forbidden to murder anyone in his own magazine, and he had to be apprehended at the end of each issue, which made it very hard <laughs> to have continuing storylines. Also, Batman noticeably did not appear in this series, so it was more him battling like other villains, yeah. essentially. It didn't really work too well, but the stories balanced between emphasizing the Joker's criminality and making a likable protagonist whom readers could support and that did actually feed into I think the more modern perception of the Joker so now uh, we have uh, another lady who is to thank for really keeping the Joker into the world much like Whitney did back in the day Uh, Jeanette Kahn um, uh, becomes established as editor Whitney was a dude Whitney was a guy Whitney was a guy oh my bad well either way you know I don't well let's not assume anything Jake Mm -hmm. Uh, Jeanette Kahn is the editor in 1976 and the Joker during this time became one of DC's most popular characters. She really brought uh, the Joker into further into prominence during this time. Uh, you've also, you have Steve Englehart and penciler Marshall Roberts having an eight issue run in Detective Comics from number 471 to number 476, which defined the Joker for decades. This is in the late 70s. Um, and uh, this run apparently really, 
really hit him home and developed him even further. It emphasized his insanity, and Englehart had this to say about the Joker. Um, he was this very crazy, scary character. I really wanted to get back to the idea of Batman fighting insane murderers at 3 a.m. under the full moon as the clouds scuttled by, which oh, I yeah. love. And this included the famous Laughing Fish um, oh, uh, I read that. That's a comic. weird one. That's a super weird one. And this is that was the one I was talking about when I was like, we'll talk more about legal loopholes that he tried to find. Uh, <laughs> the idea was because he's the Joker, he has the rights to his own face. And if all the fish have his face, then he has uh, he should get a cut of every fish sold in the world. <laughs> and that's the plan. That was this whole plan. And of course, it doesn't work in any level. Uh, but yeah, that was kind of. Kind of, uh, and it culminates in surprise, surprise, the Joker threatening to kill somebody, yes. and now all the cops being like, "Don't worry, we got this," and the Joker still manages to kill him. I mean, it makes sense, you know. You think about New York in the late seventies, and of course, we're we're about to move into the more modern age where everything was dark and gritty. But I think that they no, definitely the painted shit, a picture. It shifted from a gangster uh-huh. to what was capturing our imagination. What was our image of evil? The serial killer. The serial killer. The insane the criminally insane and yes and that is where we see him transition into this role and really lay down the groundwork for the jokers that will be coming uh later on that really dug into that version of the joker and had so much more to play with in terms of their interpretation of of what the joker is as opposed to just being this silly prankster foil to batman it's people it's it's one of the it's one of the things that made me go like huh when they talk about this like transition to the darker joker and to batman as like more of a noir hero is during the silver age he was always like out and about during the day yeah and it was it had to be like an editorial and like purposeful effort by the writers to be like no we don't show batman during the day yeah batman is a creature of the night yes he is the dark knight speaking of the dark knight the dark knight rises Uh, As we move into the modern age of the Joker and comic books in general, Frank Miller's The Dark Knight Rises brings the the Joker back at 50 years old, unable to function without Batman, who finally comes out of retirement, and therefore he's able to come out of his, like, kind of catatonic coma he's been in because Batman went away and that he needs him to survive. I still shit my pants when I think about that panel in The Dark Uh Knight where he just, like, Spoilers, I guess, for nah. one of the most widely... When he snaps his own fucking neck out of sheer willpower yeah. just to fuck Batman over. Yeah, yeah. It's God! Awesome. And he's great in that comic. That mixed in with um, the killing joke uh, uh, around that time as well really uh, uh, gave us this fucked just fucking so it's just like okay now how twisted can we get and now how uh grounded can we get at the same time right and that is a lot of what the killing joke um brought to the table do you also have during this time though before we talk more about the killing joke we went in a lot on the killing joke in our alan we went by the way yeah we're gonna talk about the killing joke today but we did talk about it a fucking lot on the alan moore episode um and by the way even though Al Moore doesn't really like the killing joke i still love the killing joke and i stand behind my liking of the killing joke i think it's brilliant Fucking Alan Moore, like, it was like, I've done it by reducing comics superheroes to a just fundamentally dark, twisted, uh, childish carnival of violence and psychopathy. I've I've revealed the superhero and the supervillain to be the crude tools that they are. And now comic <laughs> books are free to tell infinite stories. Uh, wait, no, 
Now you're just going to do more fucked up shit and pretend it's cool for the rest of eternity? Well, shit. <laughs> well, bollocks. <laughs> Whoopsie doodle. Sorry, love. <laughs> he tried so hard and it did not go, it did not go as planned. Um, so... Also, though, and this really elevated Joker's murderousness during this time, you have a death in the family. I think it's that is the one. Mm. I may actually order that one when I get home tonight. Like, I really want to read a death in the family. This is the issue in which, spoiler alert, um, the, the Robin 2, the Jason Todd Robin, uh, gets just beaten to death by the Joker with a crowbar and then exploded up in a factory where he was being taken hostage and killed. This is the first time the Joker, really anybody murdered someone in Batman's like direct stable. I mean, sure, the Joker had murdered plenty of innocent bystanders before, but this was the time that he really pulled his fucking green-tipped white painted dick out. Well, the fans fans spoke. They were like, murder that child <laughs> so yes what Jake also is- uh further uh further to my thesis that the joker is just a reflection of our own per- of our own fears and perception of evil uh like th- weird side point of that story that they don't talk about he's the ambassador to the uh islamic republic of iran in that story what it's fucking you know i iran contra ayatollah asahola 80s era ah, so right. like what's evil fucking era like yeah iran's right. evil so the joker works for iran in that story uh, so yes, the, the the original Robin was replaced by the Jason Todd Robin. Was this because of Crisis of Infinite Earths? I mean, potentially. Uh, the you they know, wanted to shake Robin up. And, they wanted and to shake they Robin got rid up. of Dick Grayson. The the, the he su- became Nightwing. The positive, supportive, lovable Grayson. Dick well, Grayson the, I, is is removed. Comics go through phases. Like the the presence of Robin in Batman is always like this yeah. weird controversy because it's always, it's I always remember a weird being one. a kid and liking Robin because he was a point of view character. He was like you could you know you're a fucking tiny hairless boy. Yeah, he's you. And here's this hairless boy, fucking golden pasty thighs out in the open, and it's boy shorts. It's great. I want to be that kid. <laughs> And then, like, you grow up and you're like, Robin's dumb. Why is there a kid here? I want to fucking brood on a rooftop. <laughs> right. And then you do that for a while. And then you're like, man, Batman used to be fun. And they reintroduce Robin. Right, and Because right. he has literally Jerry Robinson and uh, Finger just talk about how it was getting annoying having to draw Batman talking to nobody all the time. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, people didn't really like the new Robin because he was foul-mouthed, impulsive, bad-tempered. It kind of reminds me, actually, of the Batman Forever, Batman and Robin. Don't you ever speak ill of Terry McGinn. Oh, no, no. Oh, no. You said Batman Forever. Batman Forever, Not Batman Beyond. I got... For a second, I thought you were going to besmirch the good name of Terry McGinnis, <laughs> and I was going to fucking walk out yeah, of this no, recording. Remember motorcycle driving, pretty boy? Holy rusted metal, Batman, I remember. You know, he was just kind of, he had, I think he would, they were kind of modeling him after the Jason Todd Robin. He was kind of a bad boy. He's sort of, and he was annoying in those movies as well. But he, but he was a Grayson. He was Dick Grayson in that. It's funny because he he kind of had he kind of ex- exuded more of this kind of Robin, right? Um, so people didn't really like this Robin because of that, and um, so they actually held a vote for 36 hours beginning on September 15th, 1988. Readers could call one of two 900 numbers to cast a ballot on they whether he should live or not. They paid money the to boy. kill the boy Wonder. Over 10,000 votes were cast with a narrow majority in favor of killing the character and thus it happened um and so uh yeah there's a four-part storyline which was written by jim starlin and you have mike mignola designing these dope covers for it if you look at the 
cover of the 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 full trade um, uh, of a death in the family, you will immediately recognize it. It's a very iconic image of Batman shrouded in darkness, holding uh, a lifeless Robin. It's really cool, um, and I really want to check it out. Frank Miller actually called this voting the most cynical thing DC has ever done. <laughs> I believe it. I believe it too, and uh, that still do- doesn't take away from the fact that this is a just a very iconic storyline. Um, apparently it's quite well done and I definitely want to check it out. Uh, so yeah, you have that right there. And then you have the Alan Moore, Brian Boland, um, with John Higgins developing uh, the origin for the Joker in The Killing Joke, which is loosely adapted from the 1951 story arc titled The Man Behind the Red Hood. Um, And it essentially is what, now all of these other things, Death in the Family turns him up a notch as a murderer, right? You've got, um, you also have the run we just talked about before that with Englehart, and that one really turns up the dial on him being, you know, just a psychotic, uh, cr- just criminally insane fucking nutbag. But what Killing Joke does is it introduces a layer of uh, genuine depravity and yeah. sadism. Yeah. Like, like a level of unpleasantness that, like, there's no masking this in shenanigans. And what I was going to say, too, though, but contrasted to that is this grounded origin story in which you can actually find sympathy for the character. And Except for that one panel where he's just like, or maybe I made it up, I don't know. Exactly. And I mean, you need that, though. You need that just like you have Heath Ledger's Joker saying, you know, mm-hmm. about coming up with different stories about how he got the uh, got the scars on his mouth. Um, but anyways, this is, I feel like these three different storylines, these three different runs, mixed in with a bunch of other stories and stuff and I, I feel like too and I know, I'm i sure people and please I actually welcome you to go on our Facebook page and also if we missed any iconic Joker stories in comic books there's so many and so please I would love to hear your must reads for this because I want to read more of this stuff I love this character and, I, and I'll always be happy I mean there's something about when he appears in television shows in movies um, I remember uh, when he when he shows up in the long Halloween even just mm. recently I read that one for the first time there's like an I get like there's an excitement there I always get I always like my eyes wide and I get so giddy when he appears in anything I you mean know? in the Arkham games he shows up even Ugh. after he dies so good all that stuff's really interesting I mean I was talking about I I was talking to my friend Jeff, actually, who I do co- the cocktail stream with on my Twitch stream, but he, um, I was talking to him about, oh, they didn't really need him in the third, like, they kind of should have gotten off of him in the final one, not even the third one, the fourth yeah, one, yeah. Um, you know, but he was like, yeah, but the one cool thing was, once you start, like, going more and more crazy, you start, like, imagining seeing like all these like weird jokery stuff all over like billboards and stuff and you'll look away and look back and it'll be gone and stuff like that and that was a really cool touch using that character but either way yeah he always just whenever he shows up it is just the best it's like you know you're in for some amazing stuff he's he's because he's so integral to the batman mythos anything important that happens to batman hat like the joker has to be there Mm -hmm. like you can't tell a bat like you can't tell a Batman story where the Joker doesn't have a hand in it. And when something and hell, every time they do something important where the Joker isn't involved, the follow up story is always the Joker going like, why wasn't I invited? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So to summarize or to quickly wrap up on, on nobody breaks the bat but me to quickly wrap up on the killing joke. I do love that um, they he also it's all about comparison and contrasting. Right. So the Joker and Batman both uh, both essentially have one bad day 
quote unquote, mm. that changes them forever. But the Joker, he, what, where Batman takes that one bad day and tries to find order using it for the rest of his life, tries to find some some sort of reason or justice or order using that event as his as his motivation. The Joker goes the opposite way and has one bad day, according to the Killing Joke, and goes on to just indulge in the absurdity of life and the insanity of life because of that, using that as motivation. And that is always a fascinating concept. Um, also, you have, by the way, the Joker uh, sh- paralyzing Barbara Gordon. Uh, that uh, was, that's still. In, like- in The Killing Joke, which is, again, much like the death in the family. They're, again, just really putting the Joker even further, further into light as a menace in the Batman uh, lore, you know, uh, just an intense, intense issue <laughs> uh, as, as opposed to before when he was just a silly prankster, just, you know, derailing trains and murdering hundreds of people. And uh, I love this quote from Moore um, talking about the psychology of, of the killing joke. Batman and the Joker are mere Batman and the Joker are mere images of each other. One bad day leading to the Batman uh, and the Joker um, essentially breaking paths and also needing each other in order to exist, um, which is again asserted in The Dark Knight Rises. So anyways, so many fascinating stories came out of the modern age with the Joker. I feel like that was when finally, much like everything else, people who grew up on these properties mm-hmm. were able to subvert them you yeah. know much like watching neon genesis evangelion again with lex uh, you know it, it's like you have to establish it with like the golden and silver age of uh, an even bronze age of comics and then you can finally subvert that after uh, you know a few decades of establishment you can mm-hmm. finally start subverting the genre and doing all this fun cool crazy shit with it and that's where the joker really shines uh, now we get to a little-known movie called Batman. Right? Oh, you 19- made a Batman movie? 1989. Do we call it Batman 1989 now? Is that how we refer to it? Uh, I call it the Bat Dance movie, <laughs> based on Prince's incredible work. <laughs> this was, of course, directed by Tim Burton, released in 1989, and this was our Jack Nicholson Joker. You are number one. The guy. Yeah. And you were talking about this earlier, but I love the line, where does he get those wonderful toys? Oh, yeah. You know, and treating these like kid, like like deadly gadgets and stuff like toys, but really kids were playing with them as toys. It's the perfect contradiction. It's so great. Uh, I love the Jack Nicholson Joker. Maybe we should rank the Jokers at some point, by the way. Uh, what do you think? Let's broaden our minds. Like, I, how do you even... Jack Nicholson's Joker was so iconic at the... He was so perfect to play the part. And he almost... There were other people up for the part, too, and everything. He, he, Jack Nicholson accepted the role of the Joker under strict conditions that dictated a high salary, a portion of the box office profits, and his shooting schedule. And one of those restrictions for his shooting schedule, he, he was always off for all L.A. Laker home games. Incredible. <laughs> of course, they used the killing joke um, for tone and theme uh, of the uh, for the film. And also the origin, though, was pulled from the original Man Behind the Red Hood comics uh, that was created in 1951. Burton said, I was never a giant comic fan, but I've always loved the image of Batman and the Joker. The reason I've never been a comic book fan, and I think it started when I was a child, is because I could never tell which box I was supposed to read. I don't know if it was dyslexia or whatever, but that's why I loved The Killing 
joke because for the first time I could tell which one to read. It's my favorite. It's the first comic I've ever loved and the success of those graphic novels made our ideas more acceptable. Um, he was actually, Nicholson was actually producer Michael Uslan's and Bob Kane's choice since 1980. Burton says about the Joker, the Joker is such a great character because there's a complete freedom to him. Any character who operates on the outside of society and is deemed a freak and an outcast then has the freedom to do whatever they want. They are the darker sides of freedom. Insanity is in some scary way the most freedom you can have because you're not bound by the laws of society. Which I think is a fucking cool quote. Joker he, rules! Remember when he pulls that big-ass gun out of his pants yes! and shoots down a plane? What? How, how many uh, amazing moments? Uh, uh, f- it's like I used to know that movie frame for frame. By the way, like I used to be able to, I I could close my eyes. I just remember when he danced around the museum in a chef's hat. I remember when he danced around the museum in the chef's hat. I remember when he throws the money all over the city. Every chemical X. <laughs> uh, like all of his quotes are so good. The you mirror. You ever dance to the devil in the pale moonlight? He's a great Joker. I mean, how do you even describe his Joker? It is. Jack Nicholson in the Joker makeup. <laughs> it is Jack Nicholson in Joker makeup. It is, but Jack Nicholson is sort of a real life Joker in a lot of ways. I mean, he's just like he's totally aloof. He's like he's like the more dramatic version of Bill Murray. You know what I mean? I, I can see that. He's just like he's aloof. He's he's crazy. The life of the party. He's fucking fun. You know. He 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 was a wonderful choice and and a great. I mean, probably not my number one pick for Joker. Probably but, not a lot of people's number one pick for Joker after. But here's the thing: Hamill and we Ledger. wouldn't have Hamill Joker. Yeah, without we wouldn't it. have it. We wouldn't have it. Absolutely not. He he just he he had a great the laugh the the just the energy. I think yeah. he really brought an energy to that role that uh, we had uh, I'd definitely at that point not really seen that we did see in the comic books. Uh, you know what he brought? He brought the idea of Joker as this charismatic figure that can like bring people under his sway. That yes, can, is that the uh, charming, almost almost sexual a little bit too, um, in a way that we hadn't seen yet. You're right. No, you're absolutely right. We wouldn't have had Harley Quinn if it wasn't for Jack Nicholson being such a fuckbeast. Yeah, being a bit I, of a fuckbeast. It's weird that I'm saying that like a joke because it's not. That is but a sincere not. statement. I mean, he was definitely this kind of playboy in Hollywood for sure. So it made sense that it would get a little more connected. And of course, we get some weird stuff with that in um, which what was it called? Uh, Arkham Asylum, uh, a serious place on serious. Earth. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The Dave McKean thing. Uh-huh. He's, uh huh. He's sexual in that one, and sort of implied that he might be gay for Batman. A little bit and things like that there definitely there's definitely a, a passion there there's definitely a passion there but yes uh, i think definitely nicholson brought in a little bit of sexuality to the role and definitely like this huge energy that was undeniable that movie's great i love that movie anyways excellent konami game for nes excellent konami game for nes <laughs> i'm sad no no i've turned into jerry seinfeld again jake <laughs> no Hey, give me Break my the pills. mind virus. My pills. They're in You're... the book bag. You have to give them to me. Or I you got to be strong, Holden. Like Holden, Jerry be Seinfeld. strong. What's the deal with the subway? I would love Seinfeld as the Joker. <laughs> That'd be fucking incredible. That would be amazing. Comedians actually. in Batmobiles getting coffee. There you go. So here's the next iconic Joker, which really was spurred by the success of Batman 1989. If we didn't have Bat- the success of Batman 1989, we wouldn't have the Batman animated series, which essentially kept Batman alive for another fucking 10 years. You Did, know? I mean, this is this is the definitive Batman in my mind. This uh, yes, is it. this is your Batman. Yeah. This is it. 
Uh, I need to go back and just rewatch all that stuff. I had the action figures. I definitely had the Joker. I loved just the look, his look in the show. Of course, it's the like very noiry. I we could definitely do an entire episode on Batman the animated series. We should. But today we're just going to talk about Mark Hamill's Joker and how he got the part, which is fun, and also his interpretation of the part, which the includes secret to a Mark Hamill Joker is that you gotta start very high and then get low for some reason. <laughs> That was an and amazing then you start- impression. <laughs> <laughs> and you just like tear your throat apart laughing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he uh, originally the part, though, was not going to be Mark Hamill. It was going to be Tim Curry. But oh, that would have been good, too. It would have been good, too. But, I'm not mad at that. But Tim Curry got bronchitis during the initial recording <laughs> session. So Hamill... <laughs> Hamill was a huge fan of that's Tim Curry doing the you're, Joker. I'm don't worry, Batman. I see you. Uh, do you think I want to be British? I, I here's the thing. I can't do actual Tim Curry. I can just do Tim Curry when he gets real guttural for some. When he gets real guttural. I'm the ha 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 ha. I'm the Joker. <laughs> that doesn't sound like Tim Curry. I see you. Ah, uh, fuck. I'm losing it. I'm losing it, <laughs> guys. Uh, we're not editing this, but just know I'm sorry for the past 30 <laughs> seconds. <laughs> so Mark Hamill was a huge fan of the comics already. And he um, uh, was already, he was he was actually in the very first episode of, uh, of Batman, um, the animated series. He did the voice of a, uh, essentially the guy who caused Mr. Freeze's wife to go into a coma. Oh. He was that voice, and apparently his sheer enthusiasm for Batman really sold the creators on him to play Joker. He also uh, credited his Joker laugh on the laughs that he honed on stage in Amadeus, playing Mozart on Broadway. He played it the part on Broadway before it was adapted to a film, and he was recast. Huh. Cause, and he was only recast because like the snooty director was like, the Star Wars man will not be the Mozart. A look, Skywalker. <laughs> he didn't want the Star Wars man. There's no to way be, the guy who directed Amadeus had that accent. To be the Mozart. It was a broken English quote that I read. I uh, didn't write it down though. Um, but anyways, Hamill said about the Joker and how uh, essentially the Joker, by the way, is a cross between the actor in Invisible Man, Claude Rains, mm. and do you know who the other person is? Hit me. Jay Leno. I believe it. I believe it a million percent. <laughs> so the high is Jay Leno and then the low is Claude Rains. I haven't, there's an orphanage uh, rigged with poisonous gas. Have you, have you seen this? Have you seen this? Here's a quote from Mark Hamill about uh, playing the Joker. I would say with the Joker, he's different every time you play him. You try and play him like the first time you've ever done it. In one script, he's meant to be really menacing, and another was a parody of Thelma and Louise, where Harley and Ivy teamed up, and Joker was left shuffling around the apartment in furry slippers and totally cuckolded. So he was played as kind of a goof in that one. So he's different every time. That's the way I look at it. But boy, I've had so much fun doing it, and it's perfect, because he always talks about how his origin story is completely different every time because he's a joker he's always changing and he's crazy so insanity means that he'll never be the same thing it's amazing how many times people say that over and over again how it's like always different it's so good one of the things that i feel like bruce tim brought to this version of the joker and paul dini and the entire crew of the batman the animated series is that like 
uh, the way how fragile Joker was that like he was all about like the delights and the pranks. And then as soon as something didn't go his way, he immediately just became a raging asshole. Yeah. That, like that, that like despite all of the pretensions, there is just this seed of just true, just selfish evil behind and him. the part where you say things don't go his way when he's supposed to be mr chaos and yet he has a way yeah and uh that's always a funny part of the core of joker in certain interpretations uh one of the most striking i think stories of the joker and uh, harley quinn is definitely going to get her own episode she's by the getting way, her yes. own movie harley quinn by the way uh the animated show introduced her right yeah. created her and that spun off from there uh we'll definitely do a, a harley quinn episode at some point but yeah that is definitely i can't that's a whole can of worms we can't even open we haven't even gotten to the heath ledger joker and i have a lot of it to say about that but uh but when uh in an episode of the series where harley quinn successfully captures batman in an attempt to finally like win joker's affection to like win the true love of this person that she has grown obsessed with and the idea that someone else captured batman when he couldn't wounded his ego so much that he basically attempted to murder harley as you know as much Basically, that original show was as close to a depiction of domestic abuse as you could get on a children's Saturday morning cartoon show. It's fucking brilliant how they handled the Joker yeah. between the writing and Mark Hamill's performance. Just, Absolutely. Honestly, there's a reason why like Mark Hamill is the default voice and everyone else that you get is just because Mark Hamill couldn't do it. <laughs> he is the gold standard. Like yeah. Heath Ledger, which we're about to talk about, is the like ultimate sort of artistic spin on it. On the character, but Hamill's the gold standard. Uh, you know? Jared Leto is the penultimate. <laughs> we will talk about that for a little bit as well. Okay. And his fucking fun gifts that he gave to the cast. But before we get there, let's talk about the man, the myth, the legend, Heath Ledger's and his Joker. Um, of course, performed- Impossible. This pretty boy Australian fuck <laughs> taking over the role of the Joker as, as, as cast in gold as Jack Nicholson. Who the fuck does this guy think he is? Do you remember pre-Dark Everyone Knight Rises? Everyone was shitting on him. Yeah. Everyone- Dark Knight. Dark Knight Rises was oh, the last I'm sorry. One. Pre-Dark Knight. Yeah, that yeah. one had t- uh, Tom Hardy. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm bad. I'm Venom now. I'm bad. I think nothing makes me. Nothing gets an automatic laugh reflex out of me than, than more than me doing the voice of Bane. Oh. It'll be very painful. Did anyone order a pizza? <laughs> oh, I think it was a prey. Mushrooms? I didn't order mushrooms. <laughs> I'm tripping balls right now. Say, Can but I, I speak to your manager? <laughs> oh, God damn it. That was fun. Okay. A strong choice. <laughs> so the Dark Knight, Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight, Ledger um, had a personal acting breakthrough a little before that uh, in Terry Gilliam's The Brothers Grimm, in which Gilliam really let him put on a clown act and approach his role in a new way. He, there were some really cool quotes he had about how he sat down and watched up until then his movies that he was in, and he realized he was like, I wouldn't even want to watch these movies, and I'm like bullshitting, and I need to like up my game and he started thousand, doing it around like, that time. teenage fans of 10 things I hate about you are just crying into their pillows right now <laughs> but you know he just felt like he was phoning it in in a certain way and then and then he and this is why he really got 
more way more invested and way more committed to these roles that he would play um up through Joker uh from around the brothers Grimm time. Um so he also was meeting with Christopher Nolan over the years about acting jobs. I think even potentially discussing possibly playing Batman at one point in Batman Begins. Um and Ledger had this to say, I would just feel stupid and silly. I couldn't pull it off and there are other people who can per- who can perfectly, but I just couldn't take myself seriously acting in like a comic book movie right Mm -hmm. but then he saw Batman Begins and he was incredibly impressed and then after that he was determined to get Nolan to let him play the Joker Nolan said Heath was just ready to do it he was ready to do something that big and he was cast before they even had a script so he was working on his character before a script was even involved that's amazing and 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 literally like sitting in a room like doing weird vocal stuff just trying to find the character uh, Heath Ledger's description of the Joker is a psychopathic, mass-murdering, schizophrenic clown with zero empathy. Um, and influences included the morbid, disfigured art of Francis Bacon, especially what his face looks like. Christopher Nolan, the makeup artist, and Heath Ledger all used... Um, if you look at the art of Francis Bacon, you can see it really looks like the texture of of uh, Ledger's face. I also loved reading about the makeup process. He would like He would, like, contort his face face in weird ways and they would do the makeup and then he'd like move it move his face around to just like, so it would crinkle. just so it would give that fucked up broken look to it so he they would always yeah just had even it. the decision that it was makeup yeah was incredible yeah for sure um also uh of course malcolm mcdowell's performance of alex in a clockwork orange mm-hmm. uh was a big part of things um watch that fucking movie you will definitely see the influence there i love uh, Malcolm McDowell's performance in that film. I was, I was like, I watched that a lot in college. I like, I was one of those kids. But one, but one of the most key things is that they go from like gangster to to like serial killer to just downright like anarchist terrorist, anarchist terrorist, punk rock, also new romantic a little bit. They use that new romantic movement that rose up in pop culture originally from the UK nightclub scene in the late 70s influenced by glam rock stars as a reaction to punk. But then of course there was also punk very heavily involved. The costume designer Lindy Hemming uh, to get the look she used Iggy Pop, Johnny Rotten, Sid Vicious, all these kind of counterculture influences well, that's going in he is. as well. He's, he literally exists counter to the society. Yeah, he but he's a glamorous counterculture so you have the new romantic yeah. and the counterculture punk rock aesthetic smushed together but like it's it's such well-trodden territory but it's it's i mean we're recording this on september 12th uh right now but literally the fact that this character that is unbargainable that is uncompromisable that literally is just committing violence for the sake of showing the hypocrisies and the unsustainability of the society around him is literally defeated by batman compromising his morals and using a uh, security digital like internet like uh, surveillance mega computer is such a 9-11 parable as yeah. anything that's ever existed and from that point like the joker twisted into something that we both fear and something we want which is kind of to disrupt the system around us uh nolan had this to say everything about what he does from every gesture every little facial tick everything he's doing with his voice it all speaks to the heart of this character it all speaks to this idea of a character who's devoted to a concept of pure anarchy and chaos it's hard to get a handle on how those elements combine the physicality reminds me of the great silent comedians it has a bit of buster keaton and 
Charlie Chaplin about it, which is I, I, I agree with and I think is awesome. Vocally, Ledger purposely went from speaking, as you said before, about Hamill's voice work. Ledger purposely went from speaking from a high, in a high voice to hitting low notes as another way to make the performance a constant surprise. That's what he was always looking for. And I love this because I see this so much in his character. Apparently, he studied the way ventriloquist dummies talk in order to try to get some effect out of it. Also, I love this fact. He had a pay-or-play deal for the role, which essentially meant if he was fired, he'd still get paid. Ah. So he literally was... He said in certain quotes... I didn't write that exact quote down. He was almost trying to get fired by going as far out as he could go with the character. He Did was you mention like, uh, Tom Waits in the mix? No, I didn't see Tom Waits, but I remember hearing Tom Waits. You as can an find interviews of Tom Waits, and it's literally just the Joker voice. Yeah. It's eerie. That's kind of amazing. Yeah. So Ledger is committed so hard to getting this character out. He ends up uh, spending a span of six weeks locked away in a hotel room, forming a character diary and experimenting with voices. Uh, it's a combination of reading all the comic books I could that were relevant to the script, and then, this is him speaking, by the way, and then just closing my eyes and meditating on it. He said about his process uh, uh, getting ready for the film. He had His journal was filled with stills from Clockwork Orange, Joker cards, photos of hyenas, unhinged clown makeup, and the word chaos highlighted in green. It also contains a list of things the Joker would find funny, such as AIDS and landmines and geniuses suffering from brain damage. <laughs> All right, I, I, I get it. Well, I will say this that I love uh, as we're about to talk about Jared Leto's J- Joker briefly. Um, when he wasn't in scenes, uh, when he was in between scenes, or you know, in you know, in the makeup chair, he was just like a friendly, lovable guy, out of character. Everyone, I think everyone's seen that behind the scenes photo where he's doing a kick flip over Batman. He's just <laughs> yeah, he's just fucking hanging out on his skateboard. He said he would give everybody a big hug before the day started and a big hug at the end of the day, no matter how long the shoot was. That he was just like just this sweet force of positivity through the whole thing. And man. It's refreshing to hear that when you see a performance that well done and then also he wasn't acting like a fucking asshole in between shots and making everybody like treat him like he was the fucking Joker. I I like that. <laughs> I, I have to. I appreciate it. It really that. is a shame that one of the fucking Olsen twins sold him pills that he OD'd on. And unfortunately, he died of a drug overdose on January 22nd, 2008, before the film even came out. It's such a tragedy. Uh, of course, that... Um, Really? That's what I meant. That's I didn't mean to flippantly <laughs> no, mention no, the no, fact no, that no. one of the Olsen twins sold him the sold pills. Them the pills. <laughs> no, no, no. That's fine. I mean, you know, especially in an episode of The Joker, I think it's okay if we like laugh a little bit about some of the absurdity of life. But uh, yeah, unbelievable that that happened. Um, but at least he did leave his mark uh, in the minds of everybody with his portrayal of The Joker. It is... It might be my number one. I mean, I think Hamill's the gold star standard, and I think he'll always be, and I completely 100% agree with you. But uh, I love every moment he's on screen. I cannot look away. A lot and of people, it is just the comparison is he's like the shark in Jaws. Yeah. Even when he's not on screen, you're always just like tense waiting for him yeah, to show up. Yeah, you're just waiting for him to come back. And, and he just, I have seen that movie several times. I am still mesmerized by his performance. It is just an incredible acting performance. I, I cannot emphasize enough. How do you feel about the uh, bad Halloween costumes and infinite t-shirts <laughs> and loot crates? Oh, I love them. <laughs> what are you kidding? This is like, this is a thing. I, I don't want to like besmirch it too hard because, but like, I feel like wearing a Joker t-shirt or like being really into the Joker is like a very <laughs> dumb guy move. I'm sorry. 
Like, like you can be a fan of that performance. It's a brilliant performance. You can be like a fan of Batman. Nobody who's a fan of the Joker uh, uh, to a degree where they're wearing Joker t-shirts is ever going to listen to an episode I just, about just the, the idea. Joker. It's like, hey, what if like the guy you make fun of and who you laugh at and you consider a dumb fool is actually the fucking smart guy who gets everything and knows what it really is about, huh? When that like, what if the guy that is uh you know a clown that you think is the clown is actually a super genius in control of everything? Huh? That'd be right. Stop laughing at me. <laughs> I'm just sitting here, just just soaking in the uh, thinking about the future uh, uh, Ghostbusters reboot style rant you're gonna receive this week on this bruiser. You're free. I'm saying we all go through a phase. We all go through a phase. And if you're out there and you love to wear Joker t-shirts, I hold McNeely endorse you. I'm saying it should be a guilty pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So now we move on to Jared Leto's Joker. I'm not going to talk about it too much. Suicide Squad, not Jared a very good Leto, movie. Jared Leto, he can't play the Joker after he's Ledger, that pretty boy. This is going to be terrible. I will say, I think more time needs to pass. I actually really like the idea of Joaquin Phoenix doing the Joker, but I also feel like, man, can we just give it a rest for a little while? Because Ledger did kind of mic drop the Joker, like, hard just give it. I mean, not only did he legend Mike drop the Joker, he Mike dropped doing a bunch of method acting craziness to yeah, play the to Joker. play the Joker and having like a crazy new take you on think the Mark character. Mark Hamill fucking like sits and meditates and looks at the word chaos for an hour. He's like, <laughs> no, I'm gonna be a fucking murder clown. Yeah, it's not yeah. that hard. And he was great too, right? And it's just, it's like, man. Also, you think Caesar Romero just fucking like went to the Alps <laughs> and like did ayahuasca and was like, what is murder clown? I mean, I didn't want to like talk about it because I felt like. I wasn't a very interesting fact, but actually, you weirdly nailed it. He oh totally God, he did, did ayahuasca. <laughs> he did ayahuasca before they even knew what ayahuasca was. They just called it uh, fun or weed. Um, so just a bunch of stoners. <laughs> like, hey man, do you want to do some fun or weed? Cut to like 15 minutes later, and everyone's just cry screaming in the middle of shitting, a suburban, just shitting profusely and fucking screaming about their mother. Um. <laughs> That's a fun image I just yeah. had in my head. Uh, anywho, uh, Suicide Squad, that was a movie. I actually saw it, weirdly enough. Um, and Jared Leto's Joker, this blinged out Joker, he got his influence from scoping out drug lords on Instagram. Um, a lot like the James Franco uh, character in Spring Breakers, if you ever seen who that. Who is also himself a uh, character who's on Instagram. What's his name? Fuck. Yeah, yeah. He's, um, he's a guy. He's Gucci a guy. Mane? No, no, no. He's, oh, he's well, literally um, tiptoeing in my Jordans. No, you no. You talking about that guy? Like, uh, it's like I, I'm going to be rich, then I'm going to act like I don't know nobody. Yeah, that I think guy. it's to that guy. Yeah, rat something. Yeah, yeah. I, it's tiptoeing in my Jordans. Yeah, okay. That's his. That's his, one of his big songs. Um, you'll have to figure uh, figure it out. Anywho, Riff Raff. The Riff guy's Raff, name is Riff Raff. Thank you, Riff Raff. But yeah, the, going from chaos terrorist after 9-11 to just like, man, Instagram rappers are weird, yo, huh? Yo, 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 Yeah, exactly. Um, he uh, also, uh, he got very method to be kind of, which is a bit contrast to what Ledger did. He made everybody, uh, he only responded to Mr. J on set. Um, he met with tenants of a psych ward uh, in order to prepare for his role, and he spent the night in a prison. He would mess with the cast. He would. He had a dude interrupt a re the rehearsal the cast was having by dropping a dead pig on the table. He gave Margot Robbie a rat and Will Smith bullets and used condoms to the cast. And it was very it's, it's, gross and weird. They say now through the lens of time that it was like a lot of 
you know, replicas of stuff. It wasn't like actual. Yeah, like, yeah. He wasn't coming. Yeah, he wasn't <laughs> coming in condoms. That's like that's like several federal crimes. Yeah. As soon as an envelope is involved, you've committed a crime. Right, right, right. That is a problem, probably. But <laughs> uh, yeah, he went. He went. You know, he committed. I like Jared Leto's work and other things. Um, I th- really think it was just a very hard sell to give us a new. And this is why Walking Phoenix. The 2019 Joker movie coming out, uh, directed by uh, Hangover director Todd Phillips. I hope it's great. Of course, I always want a Joker movie to be great. And God willing, it will be. And Joaquin Phoenix is an amazing actor. But I do think it is like we kind of maybe need a little time and space from this particular character. I mean, that that's there's a really cool rogues gallery to play with. I would love a, a Heath Ledger style take on the Riddler. On the penguin, you know what I mean. I mean, Here's DeVito kind of nailed the take penguin. Take more time, or don't be so fucking precious about it every time. Yeah, because you know, while we've been talking about all these like big movie moves, the comics have gone through like eight different versions I mean, I of what the Joker true. is supposed to be. I guess that's be. true. Uh, everything from a death of the family, where Joker yes. like ripped his own face off, yes, to uh, uh, the new thing now with the three Jokers. Have you have you heard about this? No. Uh, like years ago, Jeff Johns did this crazy story arc where Batman gained like um, literally omniscience and finally asked like who the Joker was. And uh, his answer was, there's three of them. <laughs> and the idea is they're going to launch this story. It's, it might already be published um, by the time we're listening, is that there's like each era of the Joker was actually a separate criminal. And that it's uh, that like there's now like a squad of Jokers running around. Three is actually I feel like there's too little. There's, you know, as many fear as many things that can scare a suburban child. There's a Joker version of it for sure. Um Brian Azzarello, in one of his things, said that the Joker was actually, like, a pathogen virus innate to cities that drives, like, madness and decay. Ha. Um, That's cool. It's like an energy. Yeah, that, like, you know, which feels like he's just copying. That feels like a Grant Morrison move. Yeah. That feels like a Grant Morrison move. Grant Morrison had his idea where, like, the Joker was actually super sane and thus able to adapt to everything. Uh, The whole run with, like, uh, with Dick Grayson Batman... Uh, was amazing. That had an in- incredible Joker run where uh, the Damien Robin actually beat the shit out of Joker with a crowbar. Mm. Uh, you know, so like while movies have been struggling with Joker, comics writers have been like having a blast is yeah. what I'm trying to get through. And maybe maybe that's what we need just like a little bit more ridiculousness and, and crazier takes that are just uh, fun uh, stories on their own. Uh, but it's weird to think about, though, that like uh, fucked up Joker has been around as long or longer than like just plain old clown Joker. At yeah, this at this point for sure. And I think there's definitely more to say with the character and with his relationship to Batman. And uh, I'm definitely uh, down with the clown for years to come. Uh, and I think that pretty much wraps up our uh, episode on the Joker. Yeah, I had fun. <laughs> we'll see you again next time. That's a really good Joker. You just, literally just high low. Just do it. Just we'll do it. see you together next time. You did it. You did it. It's that easy. That's a great. Wow. <laughs> I'm the Joker. We're all the Joker now, baby. <laughs> <laughs> Remember to please check us out on Patreon if you'd like to support the show a little bit more. Patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. If you do. Where can I follow you on Twitch? Oh my god. Twitch.tv forward slash old nader. So where can a fucking moron wake up and pull their phone out next to their bed because you know you're not getting right out of bed. You know you're gonna look at Twitter. And where can they look at your latest tweets? Uh you can follow me on Twitter at Best Jake Young. And uh check out dropoutdoesnotexist.com to to try and get uh to get, unsolve the mystery. Uh and uh also uh 
Hi, 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 Marie. I'm glad you said yes to to uh, congratulations to on your engagement. That is beautiful. I mean, it's not as cool as Lexi finally sitting down and watching all of Neon Genesis with me. It's a definitely close to that level of a step in your relationship. We'll get there. We'll get there. You'll get there, buddy. Uh, but anyways, congratulations to you, my friend, and uh, we'll see you next time. We will, but <laughs> I'm fucking it up so bad. <laughs> and until we see you next time, keep on whizzing and never stop b- b- bruising. The legends are true. With overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes. The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. In a fast-paced world... Every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.